Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, the podcast that has dangerously exceeded its recommended daily amount of Brexit news this week. <laughs> Last Friday, it looked as if Theresa May had finally managed to thrash out a halfway or quarterway sensible Brexit plan at Chequers. But late on Sunday night, it was goodbye David D as the Brexit secretary quit, followed by his deputy Steve Baker. Then on Monday afternoon, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson walked as well, as did someone called Chris Green at the Department of Transport, who wanted attention. <laughs> on Tuesday, it was party vice chairs Maria Caulfield and Ben Bradley. And the ERG has threatened a resignation a day until May backs down, or indeed breaks down. There hasn't been a leadership challenge yet, but can May survive? Can the Chequers plan? Can Brexit itself? Let's find out. It's a guest-free edition this week, but I have with me two of my regular co-hosts. Here's Ian Dunn, editor of politics.co.uk. Hi, Ian. Hello, hello, hello. You rushed over to meet me at the British Library on Monday to record an emergency library cast about Davis, and literally as soon as we finished, Johnson resigned, so we had to do the whole thing from scratch. Mm. I don't know about you, but it really put me off Boris Johnson. <laughs> up until then, I was a huge fan, but he just irritated me at that one moment. Yeah, it just that's all it takes, and then you're just off, <laughs> off the Christmas card list for life. And we also have our hot new signing, Alex Andreu, actor, writer and commentator for the noble land of Greece. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm all right. It's been quite a week, hasn't it? <laughs> are you sad that you didn't have to rush across London to... Uh, I'm not. To, to, no, you're not. I'm really not. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite happy. I sat, I sat at home and, and, and with every new resignation made sort of sad trombone sounds. <laughs> Just you're going... I can see the sadness all over your face right now, grinning yes. from ear to ear. Of course, the question we'll all be, be asking ourselves years from now is, where were you when Chris Green quit? <laughs> Before we get down to business, I want to mention the football. We're recording on Wednesday afternoon prior to England-Croatia, but whatever happens, it's true to say the last time England reached the semi-finals, the Tory party was in turmoil over Europe. Ten days after the semi against West Germany in 1990, Minister Nicholas Ridley stepped down after comparing the European community, as was, to Hitler's Germany. We get that sort of nonsense nowadays, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike Thatcher, May could survive the year. But do you think this shows us uh, there's just scientific law that says that England can have footballing success or political stability, but not both at the same time? <laughs> Has, have you both found the football uh, a welcome distraction uh, from politics? Yeah, I, I quite like it when it goes all international, and I, I get quite excited, to be honest. So uh, that Columbia penalty shootout was just a proper moment of sort of heart-in-mouth <laughs> terror combined with all of that sort of, like, historical shadow in your brain, that kind of muscle memory of just watching this happen again and again and always the same outcome. And then when it was a different outcome, <laughs> when I was at Sky about to go do a newspaper review, and I ended up <laughs> sort of, like, two seconds later, I was like, I seem to be hugging a producer. <laughs> that is unusual behaviour at this point. Well, I'm a Spurs supporter, so it's basically like every week for me, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly because it's the same players playing, but also because, you know, I'm used to snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, as I'm sure we'll manage again. Well, um, I, I hope we don't. Um, but I'm, I also hope that people don't try and impose too much politics on, on the game, because I saw Robert Peston, possibly under the influence of serious sunstroke, tweeting that a France-England final would be Quote, the ultimate federal Europe versus Brexit game. Two nations pulling away from each other. Football married to geopolitics as rarely before in my life. I hope it happens. <laughs> Surely the absolute last thing we want to do is turn this rather heartwarming national moment into a kind of proxy war over Brexit. Mm. I actually, I have to say, I, I think the Brexiters have been pretty OK on this so far. You would have thought that there would be a greater quantity of just 
abject nonsense riding on the World Cup thing. You know, this kind of country, of course, it can do this. Bro, this shows that people really are ultimately, you know, nationalist, blah, 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 blah. And there's been comparatively little of that. I don't have much time either for the whole, like, look, because they're not all white, it means that we love multiculturalism now. And <laughs> yeah, like, I don't yeah. know if that really holds up as any kind of problem. And I suspect that's because actually all of us, on any side of it, are all just quite grateful that there is that space of it's like, oh, we, we all kind of want the same thing in this one bit and we don't want to have yeah. to talk about the politics right yeah. now and our traumatic divisions as a country. So it's genuinely being quite pleasant. Also, surely the jingoism black hole that threatened to swallow us all was an England-Belgium final. That's when all the tabloid <laughs> headlines would have gone up yours, Brussels, and all yeah, of that. Yeah. That's the one that threatened to conflate the two. I think England-France is actually... Yeah, milder was, in comparison. Well, I think England-Belgium would have been a nightmare. That's one of many strange things about uh, a Peston's tweet. Last week, of course, there was talk that if we won the World Cup, uh, that Theresa May would, would capitalise by calling a general election. I get the feeling that she probably <laughs> doesn't want to do that now. <laughs> there is supposed to be a thing, right, that if a, you know, any governing party, if, if the team wins the World Cup, then there is a quite a sustained sort of bounce in the polls. I don't really expect any of that to be taking the place. In, in this case, if we were to do that, and presumably by, by the time that anyone hears this, this will either sound profoundly stupid because we'll be out, or maybe it would be you know, soaked in, in expectation. But either way, it's not going to add up to any of that. There really is no political element to this, except for the fact that there is still cohesion in this society, and you can still sort of see it reflected in some way by sporting yeah, yeah, events, yeah. and that there is a space there that mm. people still have that sense of community. I... I you, you. I think people underestimate how well this will play for May, though. I don't mean the football. I mean the events of the last couple of weeks. I think, I think a lot of people think that she's going to suffer in the polls. I think they're going to show the opposite. I really do. I think the the Conservative Party will take a small hit in the polls, but I think her personal rating will shoot up. Well, you, the, because the, I think the narrative that's out there is that you know she's battling against these very difficult factions, against impossible odds, and and the whole thing is building her up. You know, it, it it's sort of gone from Blackadder to Game of Thrones. Hasn't it? The, you know, the rhetoric has gone a little bit from farce hmm. to this heroic battle. And I think she's going to do quite well out of it. Well, we, we will be getting to that. This is the football bit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, thanks, both. It's coming home. Yeah. <laughs> Unless, of course, you know, it isn't. In which case, you'll know that by the time oh, you Oh, yeah. It. No, it was at this precise moment, coming home. <laughs> I think it's coming home should be like in The Handmaid's Tale where they go, blessed be the fruit. <laughs> okay, may the Lord open and you just go you just bow your head and go it's, it's coming, coming home. home and then someone else quietly goes no more years of hurt <laughs> and you just, that's our new way of greeting each other Okay, that's all the fun stuff you're getting. Now for some messages from Ian As regular listeners know we're extremely fond of everyone who backs us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon or Patreon, or whichever one of those two that it is. You are the people who make the show possible, and starting this week, we're giving Patreon supporters a little bit extra just to tide you over between shows. Every Monday, we'll be sending an exclusive column written by one of our panel, looking at some aspect of the Brexit mess, because we just can't fit everything into this one-hour show, and it is exclusive to all Patreon supporters. We're starting this week with me, Ian Dunt, on why echo chambers may not be such a bad thing after all. As we've discovered by doing Romaniacs, once you've declared where you stand, sometimes the conversation gets a bit more honest and a bit more revealing. There'll be a new column every Monday from a different Romaniacs panellist. 
Patreon supporters, watch your inbox. Everyone else, go to patreon.com, search Romaniacs and sign up. You'll get the weekly column, plus those sought-after Romaniacs mugs, t-shirts and tote bags. That's patreon.com and search for Romaniacs. Thanks, Ian. Now adopt the brace position, it's Brexit news. And there's so much of it that it's going to take up the whole show. (laughs) God help us all. Cast your minds back to last Friday when the Cabinet met at Chequers to agree the government's Brexit policy. Before long, Boris Johnson was describing it as a turd and mayhem was breaking out all over. Well, let's uh, look at the substance of the plan at least. Ian, how far, forgetting everything that's happened since, how far did, does the plan go in... Uh, facing up to some of the problems that need to be solved. I thought surprisingly far. So, you know, to to, to premise all of this, it is still completely fucking bananas and cannot be done and would never be accepted by the EU. So what she basically put forward was um, a single market for goods, which she called a free trade sort of zone or something like that. Not for services, but for goods. She then um, mentioned back, went back to her customs partnership. You remember, may remember the week before, everyone was like, oh, she's going to come up with a third way between the MaxFAC. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Actually, the third way stuff went away. There was basically no MaxFAC in there at all. It was all customs partnership stuff. Again, wouldn't be accepted by the EU, but nevertheless, still a position further on, I suppose, really from where the hardcore Brexiters wanted her. Then something interesting happened. She started chucking in this mobility framework stuff, which yeah. looked an awful lot like a strict version of free movement. Freedom. It said you come well, over it, it and looks look like a, a version of freedom of movement if the government were enforcing the rules that they can exactly. enforce. Now. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> then there was a bit on um, how far you come under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, where when she was describing, you know, we'd have a court that was independent of it but would refer back to it, you just go, well, that's the fucking EFTA court right there. You've basically just described the EFTA court that's used by Norway and Iceland and Lick. And then she sort of had this bit which you you would think was a sop to the hard Brexiters of saying, um, but if there's a bit of the sort of the unified, the common framework, the common rules that we don't like, we'd be able to say, no, we're not taking it. We'd lose access to that bit of the market. Now, that's exactly the same as Section 102 of the EEA agreement, which says, again, you can just say, no, we're not going to take this, veto this bit, and then we'll lose access. No one ever fucking does. I mean, Norway once was tempted to do it over a postal services directive and doesn't because no one ever wants to lose access to that bit of the market. But it's all there. So suddenly, considering how much she seemed to lock everyone in, a laughable notion now that, you know, we know what's happened. But she'd locked them all in and she locked them in something that I thought was surprisingly expansive. You couldn't get it past Europe, but as a base camp, there weren't that many more steps from there towards where Labour was and from there towards soft Brexit. You could yeah, yeah. suddenly see the pathway opening up and then Sunday night. Well, happened. Alex, how would, how would you define this? Because our own uh, Ros Taylor said, you know, it, it's still a hard Brexit. It's just, it's better than no deal, which now appears to be the definition of hard, hard Brexit. Well, so where would, where, where would you say this is on the, the soft to hard spectrum? It's still a hard Brexit. Spectrum. It's still a hard Brexit because of the red lines that she set herself, Theresa May set herself, right at the start of this. Mm. So she's always coming up against those. And anything that doesn't actually bust those completely is still a hard Brexit. Because yeah. if you're saying out of the single market, out of the customs union, it's a hard Brexit. But... What it does, I think, is it contains an acknowledgement that the stuff that has been promised is not all deliverable at the same time. Mm. And that's why I think it's a really significant move, because what it's saying, the message it's, it's putting out is that you can't have no customs facilitation and simultaneously no border in Northern Ireland. We cannot control a border that doesn't fucking exist, basically. Right. 
And uh, do you think that Theresa May, you're saying that, that actually Theresa May's image may have been helped by this. Do you think that she is simply trying to find a reality-related plan that fixes problems like the Irish border? Or do you think that, you know, beneath the surface, she's also had, an, she's had enough of the, like, the big man posturing of the hard Brexiters and their red lines? You know, because it, it did feel like an unusual amount of leadership from her. <laughs> <laughs> and I wondered whether, as well as the problem-solving, there was there is just part of her that wants to get the you know the hardliners to back the fuck off. Listen, I I can I will never credit sort of master planning where the possibility of chaos is in evidence. Mm. Um, but I have to say that if she were going to stand up to them, the only time to do it efficiently would be so late in the timetable that they can't do anything about it because they're now they're now looking at a situation where they basically have a deadline looming that that is coming up as long as it would take them to elect another leader and so their choice becomes do you want the article 50 um period extended or do you want to stick with Theresa May's plan if she had done this 6 months ago they'd have gone for her throat there's no, mm. absolutely no doubt in my mind. If she had done this in February or March, they would have gone for her throat because they still had enough time to elect a new leader before the June summit and importantly before the October summit. Now they don't really have time to do either. Whereas now they're sort of dancing around her throat, aren't they? They can't quite. There's a few people that really want to go quite stabby. And there's, uh, you know, a yeah, few they, that are quite sort of hesitant about that and where that goes. Well, because they don't know what they will end up if they if they get rid of her. I, I also think they really don't because they don't have the numbers. So they could get rid mm. of her and end up with a super hard remainer at the helm or they could end up with a general election. But this is why <laughs> all they're doing is 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 sort of bullying because they don't have a workable strategy. The only thing is to try and sort of break her spirit by getting more people that we've never heard of to resign. But but that's the problem for both sides. They have enough numbers to block, but not enough numbers to put through. Mm. And that's why we're stuck in this, because both sides of the debate have enough rebels to block stuff, but they don't have enough numbers to actually push stuff through. That's true. It is a symptom of weakness, the tactics that they're pursuing right now. And it seems, I mean, what, what we've seen from this show to the last is almost a complete reversal of how things were operating. Yeah. So the tactics that the ERG, the European Research Group, hardcore rump of uh, sort of Tory jihadists, as Raphael called them, um, it, what we're seeing from them is now essentially that they are the saboteurs. So they're talking about uh, drip feeds of daily resignations. Admittedly, people no one's ever fucking heard of, but nevertheless, you know, ultimately it has I, a cumulative I'd love effect. To, I'd love to search back their Twitter feeds to see what they were saying oh, about Labour about labour backbenchers when they were resigning one a day to try and dislodge uh, yeah. Jeremy Corbyn. I bet loads of the people doing it now were mocking. You don't even have Ben to Bradley's Twitter back. feed is, you know yes. that's a treat. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even three days back with Bradley, he's yeah. like, you know, it's all nonsense, not all of it is. Um, and they're, they're suddenly starting to talk about, well, could they fight back against the government's use of statutory instruments yeah, and yeah. legislation? You think, well, that's fucking fascinating because just last month, you were the one saying that any kind of change to those statutory instruments was, it was undermining the will of the people. Now that they're not so sure how those statutory yeah. instruments will be used, they're not so keen on them. However, what's interesting to me right now is the fact that we don't really know what's happening in the ERG. It's changed a little bit. Now, we, we assume there's about 50 to 70 guys in there. But we are... I feel that right now, this week, 
when we we always talk about the business end of Brexit and blah blah blah, I feel that that actually happened this week. Yeah. This week we've started to see divisions within the Brexit forces, and yeah. we're even seeing them within the ERG. Yeah. So some of them will put prioritise Brexit over anything to do with the party, over anything else, yeah, yeah, yeah. existential matter of the heart, England versus the great European tyrants, all of that. Some of them will say. It's, some, it's sometimes a tactical distinction where they're like, no, you know what, guys, we'll get this thing over the line. We can pick it apart later and whatever, yeah. but just hold steady right now and don't, and don't unsettle her. Some of the others are thinking there is long-term damage that is happening to the Tory party here, and I ultimately prioritise the party over the Brexit project. So these divisions are starting to go even in the nucleus of the ERG, let alone the rest of the parliamentary party, and that is a new development and one that's and, quite useful for Remain. And Romanians. they're exactly the same divisions as, as we've had on the Remain side. Exactly, exactly. Um, who... Yeah you know, are caught between do we try and kill it completely or do we try and get the softest Brexit possible? So maybe it comes to it comes to do with the onus of being in a position where you have to act mm. to stop it. Mm. That is what exposes the fissures within the group. Mm. But what's quite interesting is that as completely messed up as this is, it, it's actually a fair reflection of a 5248 vote. It's actually a fair reflection of a country that's split down the middle and each side is then split down the middle of that between the different versions of Brexit and Remain. You know, Remain but Reform, Remain and go full federal, Brexit, uh, you know, and sort of bomb Paris as opposed to <laughs> Brexit but be like Norway mm. and, and not bomb Paris. It's always my well, preferred I, option, by yes, the way, is not to yes, bomb Paris. Not, like. don't, yes. Well, Kids at home, don't bomb <laughs> Paris. But I was thinking there was, there, was, there was so much division on the Leave side and so many uh, fairly dishonourable arguments about what the kind of mandate is and what people want. That, that actually, if you laid out all the, the options on the table, the one with the numerically the largest mandate would be no Brexit. Yeah. Although, like you said, actually, if you broke that down, you would find people yes, who course. wanted to join of the course. join the euro. And then, you know, even within that, it's just at the moment, there's really no difference. Or people who dislike the EU, but uh, but dislike radical change even more than that. Because yeah, yeah. that's also a huge group. Yeah. Mm. But to me... If there were another referendum tomorrow and you asked people, would you like to um, bomb leave completely in bomb Paris, <laughs> to, to strike a Norway-style deal or remain, you would probably get remain completely thrashing the other two mm. numerically. And this was the, the fundamental problem of the referendum, that it grouped all these smaller factions, what I, what I used to call the UKIP bucket list. You know, if you don't like not being allowed to smoke in a pub, vote for Brexit. If mm. you don't like, uh, you know, political correctness, vote for Brexit. If you don't like um, the fact that fishermen sold their own quotas to Spain 20 years ago, vote for Brexit. It just became this big vessel into which you could pour any frustration. And if you begin to break that down, it's actually really small groups. Well, this is exactly what... When um, they remain, yeah. the remain thing is actually quite a clear alternative. But it's, it's like exactly what, st things stay what, as they are. Uh, Joe Toyman from YouGov told me last autumn, I think, um, where he said, well, at the moment, look at the kind of 50% that want to leave. But he goes, but is that actually... 
10 groups of 5% mm. who all want different things. Yeah. And this is the point where, you know, you're getting these, these absurd claims, you know, that 17.4 million people want, you know, no deal. Mm. These, these ridiculous things. And somebody tweeted, I think, I think maybe you saw it as well. Uh, a finding from, you know, a uh, point that said that two weeks before the referendum, only 22% of Leave voters thought Brexit uh, necessarily meant leaving the single market. Well, let's remember, of course, that the history that they didn't know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we always knew that between 20 to 40% of Leave voters were either indifferent about immigration or they prioritised the economy, the maintenance of the economy over reducing immigration. Yeah. And you take away that, you obviously don't have a majority for, for Brexit. Yeah, so yeah. The, the, the democratic argument for leaving the single market and the customs union was always bullshit. Like, it never yeah, made yeah, sense, yeah. even at the beginning. But we bought it wholesale as a society. Like, we, we totally signed up to the idea that ultimately this was Farage's country and it needed to culturally reflect Farage rather than some kind of uh, moderate response towards the vote. This has always, always been there. And in Euroscepticism, the idea that you have to break away from all of Europe is a very, very recent idea. Completely. For decades, yeah. they've been talking about we like the single anathema. market. They want to be in the single market, but they want out of the political My structure. My whole life, what that they was said was, the point. It's, we like the common market, yeah. we don't like the EU. Always, always the thrust of Right, it. and then suddenly what? Six months before the referendum? And even then it was a bit messy. It's these guys that switched over quite recently who've really adopted that biblical level of no several ties, several ties, because it was suddenly about identity politics yes, and not about Yes, because it was the only way to get it over the lines. Hmm. Be- because suddenly you had people driving vans through crowds in London, and that somehow conflated with the fear of the other, and that somehow conflated with big red arrows pointing from Turkey, hmm. you know, into the UK, and it somehow became all about immigration. It was the only way for them to get it over the line. And so now they're stuck in the situation where the one thing that I would guess is present, not throughout 100% of the Brexit vote, but I would say probably 80% of the Brexit vote, is that people wanted to end freedom of movement, and there's no way to do that without giving up the single market. And that's the pickle they're in at the moment. They've basically promised to end freedom of movement because that's how they got people to vote for this. They got the vote through on the fear of the foreigner. Well, didn't Steve Baker say something like that? He goes, well, you say what you've got to say to to win a referendum. Well, I, I just thought it was so extraordinary. He was asked, you know, where you... Did you not downplay how complicated this would be? And his response was... Um, Well, you, in a referendum, you choose the argument that's going to win. It is an extraordinary thing. And then he went on to say that it was fine, reverted to that old line everyone knew what they were voting for, which is the key to this this putting together of a salami that's been sliced, which which is what happened with a mandate. It was a a sliced salami of a mandate, and, and they then put it back together in order to suggest that Um, well, we know people wanted this and we know people wanted that and we know people wanted the other. Actually, you don't. Well, everyone knew what they voted for. It's actually a bigger lie than the bus lie. Well, everyone knew what they voted for individually, (laughs) but you don't know what they voted for. That's the point. But you you talk there about this idea of this sort of myth of sort of Farage's Britain. I'm not sure if you saw these 
these reports this week. But there was an ORB poll found, that found that 48% of Britons would prefer free trade with the EU to control over immigration versus mm. 38% well, the opposite. And then the latest British Social Attitudes Survey shows a huge growth in positive attitudes towards migrants, both economically and culturally, almost doubling, I think, uh, economically in the last five years. And as uh, Tom Sutcliffe from Radio 4 tweeted, so historians will shake their heads at what we did to ourselves in the name of prejudices that were already dying. It's very well put. And mm. I, I found that actually comforting because sometimes you do feel that Britain mm. is becoming more racist. The idea that it's actually becoming more positive towards immigration sort of makes this idea that we have to push this through because everybody's so angry about immigration even more dissonant. By the way, the funny thing is we're not sure why this is happening. So it was happening before the vote. I yep. know that yeah, yeah. about five years now. It's definitely partly demographics of, you know, the older, older people, more reactionary views, dying off. Younger people grew up with freedom movement, grew up in a much more international country, much more supportive. But interestingly, it's also happening within groups. So those who are already critical of immigration are becoming a little bit less critical of immigration. Those who are pro-immigration are becoming a bit more pro-immigration. It was boosted after the referendum. It started improving at a higher rate. Now, you, a lot of the sort of the more sort of centrist levers have used this to say, look, we've cured the disease, you know, that actually Brexit is, is addresses reaction. I, I, I do not ever accept that you cure a disease by pumping a body full of more of the disease. I don't think that's the answer to it. I think what happened since the referendum is that those who uh, support an open society, who support liberalism, multiculturalism, started to self-identify more vigorously as that was what they believed in and wanted to take that fight in the way that you see supporters of the EU, who used to be frankly quite quiet in British political yeah, yeah, yeah. debates, suddenly become quite proud of their association with the EU but nevertheless that process was there before and we do not yet fully understand it and I agree despite all of this this absolute shit chasm it does reassure me when I go to bed well let's um let's talk about the resignations obviously we we talked about David Davis quite a lot and then had to delete and re-record it (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean he seemed to embody the the sort of process arrogant incompetent legacy belligerent and oblivious to how much hard work and diplomacy that Brexit required um what's his apart from being symbolic what's his what's his legacy is there anything that you can look back on and go well you know fair play he did that well there's nothing um his resignation he, well, he didn't even. But you know what? Actually, he, he didn't did that do that right. too badly. He yeah, did yeah. Right. He didn't have a picture taken of himself yeah. signing his no, resignation. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a bit more dignity there. Yeah. So I mean, like, he even during the campaign, the man didn't understand what the fuck he was talking about. So he'd say during the campaign, "We're going to do a bilateral trade deal with Germany." That's exactly how we'll sort this thing out. You're like, well, if you'd read one page, just one fucking page of what this entailed, yeah. you would know that that was not possible. Later on, you know, even after you Seeing became Brexit the Secretary, reason you're advocating we leave. It is because you cannot do that. Yes. Indeed, yes. You would have thought that that would you'd be a wake-up call. You would have thought that you'd know that, right? <laughs> Seeing as it's why you're saying we need to leave because we can't do bilateral trades. Um, then during the... When he becomes Brexit Secretary, he doesn't seem to be fully aware of the fact that the Republic of Ireland is a separate country, constantly talks about our <laughs> internal borders with them. Quite alarming. Those first six months of him becoming Brexit Secretary, you may remember just the sheer arrogance and the enjoyment that he brought with him to the attacks on those who were upset by the vote. And again, there was no detail there. He was the one that used that phrase, the exact same benefits, which Tony Blair took careful note of, went to Keir Starmer and said, well, if he said it, fucking use that as one of your tests, which Labour then do and continue to do to now. Their ammunition comes directly from the Brexit Secretary. Those first meetings, he sits there with no papers. He leaves 
almost as soon as it begins, even on the first day, he goes right back to London to have dinner. I think it was with Paul Dacre, obviously. Because Having the agreed else. the timetable. Yes. Having presented absolutely no alternative to the timetable, mm. he basically goes there and is shown a draft of a timetable and a sequence of events that the EU officials have, have done. He has no counter-proposal, so he whinges about a little bit this and a little bit that, but basically signs off on the European timetable. And then blame which Theresa May for it, by number the way, two. which again was quite a, a dishonourable way for him to behave. He was the one that signed up to that yep. sequence after saying that it would be a big battle. And then suddenly he was piling all the blame on her in exactly the same way that Boris was later. So we shouldn't go too above ourselves with sort of thinking, oh, you were so much more honourable than, than Boris Johnson was. Of course was. not. But he wasn't. It's not hard, though, is it? No, that's, I suppose that's fair. He, he did. I mean, look, he was frozen out pretty early on. I mean, by, by September last year, he didn't really have much of a role. Ollie Robbins, who moved from his department, he never really got on with Ollie Robbins, went right into Downing Street. And Downing Street pretty much took over negotiations yeah. from that point. He'd had four hours with Michel Barnier this year. So he was already out of the whole thing, really. I think well, it was the third meeting or something where he was a no-show as well. Hmm. He had a yeah. diary clash, apparently, and didn't show oh, up for his meeting with Barnier. He was on a special SAS and, mission. But, but at that point... <laughs> At that point, if you're Barnier, you do call number 10 and say, can you send me someone that isn't a clown, mm. basically? Well, well given that the, the actual Churchill dog from the adverts would be an improvement, <laughs> what can we expect from, from Dominic Raab? He's, he's, he's not our favourite Tory Dominic uh, by any stretch. And, and like the new health secretary, Matt Hancock, he has strong ties to the right-wing think tank, the Institute of Economic Affairs. Oh, joy. Um, They're all institutes, aren't they? T- it's amazing, isn't it? They're all institutes. They need some kind of special I need special to call myself an institute. No, you can't. You need, there's a sort of legal thing. Is there? Because the Institute of Ideas just got slapped down for this. The, sort of, the, <gasps> the Claire Foxes who are Oh, that's my favourite institute. That's why she's renamed reluctant. it. That's why they're renamed, because there's some sort of formal structure to when you are in and not allowed to call yourself an institute. And what is that? I don't know. I'd like to be an institute. Can you look we into it, We will work Ian? on this. Hey. I'd, like, I'd like to be an alliance, like, like, like the Taxpayers' Alliance, which is a totally legitimate, entirely transparent Completely. alliance of ordinary Joes. Funded by other ordinary Joes. Or funded by other ordinary Joes who just, for various reasons, would like to remain entirely private. So Dominic Raab, okay. Yeah. Um, I, the, there is one bit of him that I remember very, very vividly to do with the Brexit campaign. He compiled a dossier of 50 dangerous EU criminals who posed a risk to the British public. Mm. When challenged on it, he didn't know how many of them were unable to be deported because of EU rules and how many because of ECHR rules. He basically conflated the two. And the guy's a lawyer, okay? And, mm. and so he was talking about the ECHR in terms of it being a, an EU structure. And the second mm. thing is he didn't know how many of them were in jail. So he was challenged by Michelle Hussein that morning on, on the Today programme. And she was like, so if these people are a danger to the British public, how many of them are at large? And he had no idea. <laughs> you know, it could have been 49 of them were in jail. And were, were they all real? No, no. Was one of them Le Listen, Chiffre from I have Casino no Royale? But I have a quote here. OK, so when he got into difficulty, he, he said this. And I want you to take a moment to absorb the monumental, impenetrable stupidity of this. OK, the top three countries we're unable to deport because of EU rules are all European countries. 
<laughs> I'll say that again. Think about it. The top three countries we're unable to deport because of EU rules are all European countries. <laughs> I think you'll find they're all European countries, right? Standing in front of a board of the top map three, of Europe with lots of red five, thread. Top 10, top 27. <laughs> the top 27 countries we're unable to deport because of EU rules are all European countries. But, Ian, do we think that he will be more... Um, Competent, hardworking, uh, just better in, in, in any way? I think he's very similar to David Davis, um, and they're quite close, actually. So he's the sort of idiot's idea of a smart guy. He's that classic old thing of, you know, the scrubbing up on your GCSEs late at night, come in and try and do well in the exam, that version, not the kind of thing that we need. Of course, it's someone with techn- technical expertise and some an eye for detail who can go up against the Europeans. However, the thing is, he goes into a department that has now already become sort of a subservient to Downing Street. Yeah. So the position has completely changed. It's actually, he doesn't not going to play that big a role in right. how this thing operates. And he also comes in having already seen the checker statement and therefore is sort having of strapped up to, to it. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So on both of those terms, I don't think that we'll see a significant change from him. But it doesn't, it doesn't really matter because DexEU has been kind of shifted off to the side. It doesn't really matter. I mean, my so, sense so. is that it's irrelevant, that, that he's a really ambitious guy that I think wants to be in the mix Next time there is a, a leadership yeah. election, uh, same as Sajid Javid, uh, and he will do whatever will play well with his parliamentary party and then the grassroots support, um, which makes him quite a dangerous unknown quantity, I think. Um, but what, what's, in, what's, what's, what's quite interesting is that I think what Theresa May is doing is she's skipping a generation. She's giving big jobs to all these people that will be players come the next leadership election mm. in order to actually skip the David Davis, Boris Johnson generation entirely. They will be out of the mix and it will be a, a sort of Amber Rudd, Sajid Javid, Dominic Raab fight when the leadership election comes. Do you just wait and see? Boris Johnson, of course, is a is a firm believer in the principle of Boris Johnson becoming prime minister. <laughs> but he was sort of humbled at checkers, beaten to the punch by Davis. Now seems to have missed his opportunity for a leadership challenge. Mm. Uh, I mean, have we? Seen, I hesitate to say it, but have, have we seen the sort of last of him as a as a major figure, as a potential PM? Is there is there were a way back because he seems vastly diminished, and that and his main asset would seem to be his enormous. Baffling popularity with the British public because he was just like you know a good bloke. Um, that seems to have gone or at least shrunk. He's got quite little support, didn't he, in the press the days after? I mean, he obviously has a Telegraph, which is basically his free mailing sheet. He had, I mean, a couple of pieces. I think there was one in the Specky, but mostly he was he being used to have given the a standard, hard time, but not anymore. Not anymore, exactly. He's so he's not getting that much support in the press. He's considered quite warily by a lot of even Tory Brexiters because, of course, they don't consider him a true believer. They know that ultimately he's just doing stuff for himself. He's, mm. he's not an ideologue like they are. And he hasn't you know, properly drunk the liquid. Then there's the fact that I think Jacob Rees-Mogg poses quite a damaging threat to him in terms of brand. You know, you've got this guy who is playing in the same kind of branding Sand pit. It's the Beano Posh guy, Brian. Yeah, exactly. It? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's a bit wacky. He says what he thinks. He's an eccentric, but ultimately quite smart. Can speak a bit of Latin. You know, like, they're, they're playing a quite similar role there. And Jacob Rees-Mogg, certainly with the grassroots position in the ERG and just generally how he's played this thing, has come off a lot better with that lot than Boris has. So Boris suddenly, the friends he has, especially in Parliament and Fleet Street, are dwindling. And his resignation letter memorably compared Britain under the Chequers plan to a colony. 
which uh, confusingly coming from a man so relaxed about colonialism that he recited <laughs> Kipling in a Buddhist temple in Myanmar. Johnson means this in a bad way. Uh, colonies run by Britain, bad. Britain being colony, good. Sorry, the other like way around. He's Sorry, sort of somehow instinctively racist in some way. But I don't, you know, don't know what that means. <laughs> well, that's, uh, but that's the whole basis of Brexit, isn't it? I'm I'm an immigrant. You're an expat. If, yes. you, if you go abroad, yeah, yeah. you're yes. an expat. Exactly. If I'm here, I'm an immigrant. That's the whole. That's the whole crux of it. But what was missing, and in fact, it's been missing from all of his sort of Brexity colleagues, many of whom have weighed in. I'm sure we, you know, Pretty Patel came back to say Brexit <laughs> means Brexit. Thanks. Was there, was any sign <laughs> of an alternative plan? It's like it, it wasn't in Davis's letter. It wasn't in Johnson's letter. Nobody's coming up with one. So there's these, all this talk of sort of you know betrayal and treason and. You know, all this kind of dramatic talk. Nobody has gone, all right, look, here's a better this one. This is what we should you know, do. As opposed to yeah. let's stockpile tinned food yeah. in case of a no deal. There was a story about yeah. that today. That's extraordinary. <laughs> that as a threat to the European Union, we're stockpiling sort of tinned Spam. food. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> that is our negotiating line. Unless you give us a good deal, we're going to eat angel delight for the next 20 years. <laughs> And hilariously, Brexit. And they say we have no leverage. <laughs> <laughs> and what what I my favourite of the week maybe is Brexiters now complaining that there aren't enough Brexiters in the cabinet. <laughs> it's incredible, incredible. I mean, unbelievable. <laughs> but is the is abandoning that Leave Remain parity that she's kept in previous reshuffles a sign that sort of May's putting her foot down? It's like right now, if you walk out of the door, I'll replace you with Jeremy Hunt. You know that she that she she doesn't care anymore that seems to me quite a telling sign mm-hmm. i mean there's such a weird idea behind this which is that we're frozen at the point of the vote you know take jeremy jeremy hunt jeremy hunt says i voted remain i would now vote leave so i am a fully signed up leaver and obviously the same is for theresa may i'm not going to question them on that i mean theresa may's done a pretty fucking good impression of being a brexiter for the yeah, last yeah, yeah. two years yeah. it's not like the fact of how it's not like it's sort of stamped into her dna the way that she voted two years ago they're not leavers and remainers anymore they are the position that they've held over the last two years which in the tory party apart from about 12 of them or even less they're, all they're brexiters yeah, exactly yeah. so this desperate attempt to only go it's a remain government when your nonsense project Fed finally by falls the apart media the whole time who intri- keep introducing people as a Remain MP. Mm. You know, yeah, this yeah, is no, nonsense. Right. There's a, right, only yeah. a handful of truly Remain MPs. And don't get me wrong, it's not like I believe that Jeremy Hunt is a Brexiter or a Remainer. I don't think he gives a fuck one way or the other. Yeah. He will just do whatever is useful for his career. But ultimately, that is leaving the EU. And so that is what he is right now. So all of those designations seem quite nonsensical. But it is interesting that she's given up on trying to maintain that perfect sort of yeah. balance between the two. Well, now for a quick message. Long-time listeners will remember when we had Nick Clegg on as a guest. It went so well that our backroom team now produced Nick Clegg's own podcast, Anger Management, where the former Deputy Prime Minister talks to major figures from across the political spectrum about how anger is shaping our world and how to stop rage winning the war against reason. On this week's episode, Nick meets the formidable Joe Biden, Obama's vice president. It's a fascinating encounter, and what do you know, Brexit came up in conversation. What did you think when you heard that the United Kingdom had voted to leave the EU. I was really disappointed. Um, in terms of U.S. interest, I was disappointed because you were ballast. Mm. You, uh, if we had any, in a, a bizarre sense, I want to exaggerate to make a point. If we had any voice in uh, in Europe, it was you. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, number one, number two, uh, I was um, 
not surprised because in times of confusion and great change, mm. um, I think, as I said, tried to say earlier, um, there, we all become susceptible to the demagogues who, and I'm not saying anyone in particular in Britain was a demagogue, I don't mean that, but those demagogues and charlatans who, uh, in order to aggrandize their power, um, find a scapegoat, find a problem. The reason why this happened is because that mm-hmm. immigrant. The reason why that happened is because of that African-American population yeah. in my state, et cetera. And, um, and what I do see, um, and remember, you know, you said today, I think you said today, that uh, a lot of this wouldn't be the case had we not gone through this most unique of all recessions in world history. It was the financial crisis. That's my view. Well, I I, I agree. Mm. I agree because, look, a lot of those working class and middle class people in your country and mine and throughout Europe, they had a home. Uh, They may have lost it uh, as a consequence of uh, of the economic meltdown. But they never got back in the market. So when home values went back up, they're on the sidelines. That's Joe Biden, Joe freaking Biden, in conversation on the latest episode of Anger Management with Nick Clegg. It's exciting though, right? It is. You said it very convincingly. It's Joe Biden from from The Onion. Search Anger Management on Apple Podcasts or on your own favourite podcast platform. Back to the news and trying to answer the question, what happens next? Ian, the, the, the checkers plan is um, I mean, is it seriously dented by these resignations? I mean, obviously you said it's going to have problems with the EU anyway. Um, what's what are its chances at the moment, and have they kind of shrunk drastically since last Friday? You know, I don't actually think it's looking too bad right now because the resignation stopped with uh, Boris Johnson when you and I were doing that emergency podcast. If an hour after that Liam Fox had resigned, I kind of feel like that would probably be critical mass of actually the, the, the moment of her toppling would be taking place at that moment. Right now, she's survived those. They're now already, they say they've got other people around the cabinet, but I'm not so sure about that. Mm. I mean, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're getting vice chairs to resign and Bridgens to send in the letters, it doesn't look like you've got a lot to work with. At that and, sort of unless, they're, unless they're managing it around the England game. Because obviously the resignations, if they'd come on Saturday, you know, we'd Mm. have heard nothing about them. It's possible. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But if if I were organising it for them, I'd say don't do big resignations on... Yeah. You know, just before and after the England game because they'll get lost. You know? No, that's that's fair. But I just don't think that they've got the power. Certainly, no, I don't think they certainly have Certainly not them. at the moment. I don't think they have They them. could as things go on. And here's, here's the thing. Ultimately, she can't do anything with just checkers. She knows. I mean, she's almost said it. You know, this is the base point from which we make, from which we have the conversation with the EU. And the yeah. conversation with the EU only goes one way, which is further concessions. Now, David Davis on the Today programme um, on Monday morning was quite explicit about this, actually. He said, I can't do anything about this part. But what I can do is make sure there's no more concessions. Yeah. And a strong ERG response now can potentially do that. And if there's no more concessions, we are back in the no deal game. That is where we are, because this is not enough. This does not solve but our respect. Parliament wouldn't just accept a no deal. Right. OK. But that's the second. That's exactly where <laughs> so, we go. So to we're after in that. extending Article 50. Well, that, not necessarily. Mm, or or general election or a. Agree. There's or a series a of events. People's that, vote. There's a series well, of events to take. Yeah. Steady on, Back to the Future. We'll, we'll <laughs> step at a time. Okay. Before my head explodes. 
In his resignation letter, Ben Bradley said, we should ensure that walking away on WTO terms is a genuine and achievable alternative. But, I mean, it's not, is it? I mean, surely... I mean, surely that that no deal, there is no workable no deal option. But you're you're sort of saying that we could be, we could be closer to one. I don't know how people are kind of Look, you can do swearing whatever, this. You can do whatever you want. It's just that you have to pay the consequences of it. Yeah, and this, oh, yeah. It, it can happen. Yeah, and the consequences are so severe that most people wouldn't do it. I, let's talk. Actually, should we? Let's talk about it. If, if she comes and back with no deal, importantly, it can happen by default. It can happen simply because you it run out default. of time yeah. and actually the EU27 turn around and say, we've had enough of this uncertainty. It's actually affecting our markets. It's affecting our economies. Bye-bye. So let's let's talk about what happens if, if that takes place because that's the sort of crucial part. I think she comes back with no deal either because you can't secure it or because they vote against it. Now, it seems to us that extending Article 50 is the most likely way for that to go, but it isn't necessarily the case. Now, we presume that if she got no deal, she has to resign. If she resigns, there's a Tory leadership battle. And in that Tory leadership battle, you have two, you whittle it down to two MPs. You send those names out to the membership, very Brexity membership, and they give you a new leader. Now, I think in that scenario, you probably will get a Jacob Rees-Mogg type or him himself. And they may well try to push through no deal. Mm. Now, the question then goes back to the meaningful vote stuff. And then it gets very constitutionally complicated very quickly. You've got about five months for MPs, because as you say, there's no majority for no deal in the House of Commons, for MPs to try and take on that government, whether it was Jacob Rees-Mogg or Theresa May, but I think it would be a Jacob Rees-Mogg type. There are three mechanisms that they can use to try and achieve that. The first one is they can use legislation that's already in front um, of the Commons that they're going to have to pass in order just to accomplish no deal itself. The second one is that the government will come back with a bare-bones no deal, which is like a couple of aviation treaties, maybe a little something on migrant rights. Yeah, yeah. Like that. You can put amendments on that. And the third one is, and this is the more constitutionally interesting one, I think, would be that those um, neutral motions that the government is allowing, which is on a no-deal statement where you put a neutral motion down, you say you can't put amendments on this, that the speaker takes an interpretation of that that says, fine, your wording is neutral, but the purpose of this motion is not suitable for a neutral motion, and therefore I'm going to allow amendments. Now, that is very controversial, but there are some people, constitutional experts, who are looking at this stuff right now around to the Westminster, who actually are starting to think that he might just have the power and that David Davis might have given him that power when he made that statement on the Speaker choosing in order to try and buy off Dominic yeah, yeah, yeah. Grieve. So even in those scenarios, there are situations that MPs can take control, extend Article 50, and then we're in the world of fuck knows. You know, yeah. general elections and new referendums are back to the negotiating table. Oh, God, this. Alex, what do you think chances are of a general election in the next few months? I don't know, because I think ultimately um, what goes on in Westminster also depends on what goes on out there. Um, if public opinion starts to shift in a serious way, and I think if it begins to shift, it will shift in a serious way. I don't think it will be a trickle. I, I think it will be a tipping point. I think if we end up in a no-deal scenario, I think people will get very angry very quickly. You already have the 48% who voted not to leave, and I think you will have a significant slice of the people who voted to Brexit saying... You told us this was going to be easy. You told us they were going to beg us for a deal because they need to sell BMWs and, and Prosecco. You lied to us. I think there's going to be a significant slice of the public that moves directly over to remain. And if the, if the electoral numbers change significantly, all parties will take notice of that. 
and that will change what goes on in Westminster. So, so that's my caveat. Should we? Um, there's one thing to note here, which I think is quite interesting, which is that if it's true that the ERG don't have the numbers, and they continue with these tactics, their point is, well, we're going to vote against the motion that you bring back. Now, think about the incentives of that on Theresa May. The first thing that does is it means, well, I don't have the numbers anyway. Anyway, exactly. Now I've lost another 50 or 70 votes. So then who do you go to? And the answer to that question is Labour. Yeah. And that entails softening your position even further. So then you have these three people who are putting pressure on May, the business community, Brussels and the Labour Party, all for a more moderate Brexit compromise. So actually, if they don't have the numbers, the dynamics over the next few months could actually help push her towards coming up with a more moderate compromise. No, I think, yeah, you you make it slightly easier for her because if you have a faction of her own MPs that are impossible to convince onto your side, then you stop trying to convince them onto your side Mm -hmm. and other votes become your target. And um, did you, either both of you read Paul Mason's sort of argument in the new statement for how Labour should play it? I thought, I mean, he's not always a a sensible man on Twitter, but I I thought, you know, I still think his journalism is strong. And I feel like this was very interesting. I'm just going to sum it up very quickly, which is his idea was almost for sort of Labour to play the kind of national unity card. So it says, vote against on a three-line whip, all attempts to codify the Chequers position in the Commons, no more tolerance of Lexit voting MPs. I'm all up for that. Publish a positive outline of both its single market proposal and its proposal on migration. This can't wait. You can't fight a second election. You can't fight an election without them. Uh, that would be unprincipled. Finally, offer a second referendum on the final deal signed with the EU27 should the party form a government. I move on from the position of not ruling it out. Now, this is somebody who is a, a great Corbyn backer actually proposing uh, a people's vote. Obviously, he doesn't use that language. This seemed sort of, you know, not, not like a per- sort of perfect plan, but it seemed promising. What did you make of it? I agree. I mean, look, there's some stuff that's wrong in there. So, for instance, I mean, she's not going to try and codify the Chequers stuff in the Commons. It's just an original no. starting base for negotiation. So there's no fight to be had there. So there's bits and bobs right. in yeah, there yeah. That, don't, that don't work. But the fact that he, that Paul Mason, who's one of the, usually an outlier of, of Corbyn stuff, is suddenly... And quite Eurosceptic in many ways. Oh, very much because so. Because of yeah, his yeah. Greek, Greek exactly. experience. Yeah, 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 no, very much so. He's been pretty tough on this kind of stuff. And usually he's the kind of guy that we are irritated by his sort of daily churn, yeah, Corbynist yeah. sort of stuff is saying this stuff and making the... And he is making overtures. Like he, he throws in a couple of sort of punches at the, you know, follow back pro-EU, all of that. Fine. But still, it's an olive branch. And it's a significant olive branch. I, th- I read that piece and I thought, this is extremely positive development. Mm. And, and I thought more highly of him for having written it as well. Yeah, no, me too. Now, obviously, there's another party that's very important and it's going to be bouncing back, UKIP. Speaking from the patriotic <laughs> tax haven of Bermuda... <laughs> Nigel Sharad, Nigel Farage, Nigel Sharad. Sorry, that's a bit too obvious even for me. Nigel Farage threatened no more Mr. Nice Guy. Hands up if you ever thought he was Mr. Nice Guy. And talked about running for leadership of UKIP yet again if May won't deliver a toothbreakingly hard Brexit. Melanie Phillips even advocated giving Farage a peerage and making him PM which sounded a little too much like a far-right coup to install an unelected dictator <laughs> for my liking. But I wonder if, if Farage did return and kind of UKIP rebounded in the polls, um, it would sort of hurt the Tories uh, in some marginals. They wouldn't be getting that kind of 40% that they got in the last election. But it seems to me that it might be g- good news for the sort of health of the party and politics if they sort of lost... The hard right. Is that like a is that too, too optimistic? Because it seems to me much though I've enjoyed the sort of crushing of UKIP. Mm. Now that just means that you've got a much more UKIP Tory party. Would you rather have 
Would you have a, rather have that lot it's out tricky. on the fringe it's or in the party? Tri- the, the tricky bit for me is that there is there are no two parties on the left to balance that out. I think for a healthy political system, you would need something to the left of Labour or something you know, slightly to the right of Labour. Mm. But you would need you would need two parties there threatening each other in order to balance this thing out. If you only have basically you keep threatening Tory votes from the right, um then and nothing on the left of Labour, then the whole thing slides to the right. The whole Overton window slides to the right because there are no votes to be had on the left. If you're on the left, basically, you're going to vote Labour anyway because there's nothing else. Mm. And so the whole thing slides to the right. Could, and I think, I think shout it's out really dangerous. to our Lib Dem and Green listeners who are right now chucking things at the No, right. come on. <laughs> come on. Okay. I love the Greens. I voted for the Greens in the European <laughs> parliamentary elections. But Liberal Democrats are not to the left of Labour. They're not. They're a centrist. It depends which one you speak to on which day. But there isn't there isn't an equivalent of a UKIP of the left. The, exactly. Yeah. exactly. I think I think honestly it will be helpful if if the process that you just described takes place. Because again it is part of the splitting of the Brexit lobby. Now we've had two years where they've managed to hold it pretty much together. And actually Theresa May's main goal, not just holding the Tory party together, but holding all the Brexiters together under one camp. Remember during the general election, you'd have lots of UKIP people going, we're not going to stand against the Tory if they're quite Brexity and blah, blah, blah. Now that did us a lot of damage. Now finally we're seeing within the ERG, within the parliamentary party, within Brexiters at large, a split in those ranks. And the UKIP coming back helps to split that even further. Let's say they get 20, 30%, the really nativist, nasty sort of racist Mm. Then they split them off. It's easier to work with that situation. It, it really takes away the joy Ian, of watching them fall apart. Disagree. But you I think look, it's easier to do. You with look it. at Central Europe. You look at what's going on in in a number of European countries. You look at what's going 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 on in Germany, in Norway, even. And what you end up with is a coalition government of the centre right and the far right party. What you end up with is with people like uh, Bloom and Farage being given key ministries. That's what you end up with. Under PR. You don't... Yeah, but, but you not don't under, under first-past-the-post. That's our protective mechanism. It, and I don't really like first-past-the-post. I have to say, I'm wary of it. But that's it the thing that protects you against that if, eventuality. If really Brexit here, if they target really Brexit areas, they could end up with 20 MPs easily. If, if the public... If the Brexiters yeah. are incensed that this is some huge betrayal, they could end up with a number of seats very, very easy. I admit it's not impossible, but I think it's unlikely. And I do, I do think it makes it much easier for us to fight them. Here's hoping. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Here's well, hoping. I, just want, I just want to end by talking about the, the, the voters. Um, I heard some Leave voters in Basildoming interviewed on the Today programme the other day, and they had very strong feelings, but no real sense of the practicalities. And it seems, I think perhaps why I've been so angry recently and kind just of recently. just recently particularly <laughs> angry recently okay. I mean I'm literally the amount of deleted tweets type it and then go delete, delete. I'm, I can't just, say I'm just that. like a drunk yeah. crashing yeah. through a pub <laughs> flailing my fist just like you and you um, but it's this sort of sense of that the, there's this there's all this sort of emotion we vote for this get on with it Brexit means Brexit combined with uh a lack of understanding, and in many cases, a lack of effort to understand any of the mechanics. And so the idea that you would then go, and of course, the Today Programme interview or whichever interview is not going to go, but you do realise that it can't happen 
you can't have like you know yeah. a strong economy and no border in Ireland, blah blah blah. You know, and so they're just allowed to kind of like shout their just make it happen thing. And I wonder whether I mean you you said earlier right, so you you were looking forward to a to a shift. So I want to ask Ian, uh, do you do you think people are um, well informed enough to make a shift based on the facts? Or do you, or alternatively, is something going to happen that would that would sort of change that emotional direction? Because I think this is what worries me. That it's not just about the politicians. It's about you need enough Leave voters to just go, oh, this isn't working. And it seems that, that most of them sort of want to double down and blame someone else for it not working. I don't know how I don't know how much they really know. What I do know is that there hasn't been a massive amount of support for No Deal in the country, and you would presume that there would be. Because no deal intuitively in sort of pub chat terms makes total sense, right? Yeah, yeah. You don't know the stuff about your atom. You don't know about blah, blah, blah. So just go, no, no deal. Well, fucking then we'll just go off. And you would have thought, especially back when, you know, just get on with it was this really prominent phrase that I was very wary of, that I thought was very, very dangerous to us, that there would be more support for that. And I think the reason that there isn't is because even though people aren't really, really core into the mechanics and the causation and all of that, they do have a general sense of this is probably quite complicated and there is something that's going on there. They do now. Enough of them do. They do now. Yeah. And I think that acts as some kind of protective mechanism for us. Yeah. Yeah. So we're we feeling more optimistic this week than last. Yes, but I'm feeling less optimistic than Saturday. And Saturday, I really thought, right. no, we've got a clear view right down into soft Brexit. Yeah. Now. now I think it's still there. I think the ERG will lose this battle, but the obstacles suddenly rose up on Sunday I night. feel more optimistic than Saturday, strangely, because I think actually clearing her cabinet from hecklers makes that path easier. Mm. It might. It might. I, I don't know. I don't know how it will turn out. On, but um, Yeah. Onwards and upwards. Sunday uplands. Um, we're approaching the end of the show, which means it's time to open the Brexit time capsule. This is where we store the things that we're going to miss if we leave the EU and the things we might need if we're out on our own. Alex, it's your turn. What's going in the time capsule this week? Um, Theresa May's hat. Um, if, you didn't, if you didn't see it, if you didn't see the hat she was wearing after her first cabinet meeting with her new cabinet, do look it up online. It looked like she had scalped Boris Johnson and was wearing his hair. <laughs> on her head as a trophy. It was the funniest thing I have ever seen. It was definite trolling. Definite trolling. So last week it was the Enlightenment. This week it's a hat. It's, 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 a, it's, you a, know, it's a smorgasbord of a time capsule. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Ian. Uh, are we looking forward to more emergency podcasts? No, no. <laughs> Okay, me neither. And that's the end of our show. No roll call this week, I'm afraid. Uh, we'll resume that next week. But as ever, here's our indelible theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. See you all next week at the very latest. Romaniacs was presented by me, Dorian Linsky, with Ian Dunt and Alex Andreu. Studio production was by Jack Claremont. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>